The rest of you can open up to Genesis chapter 45. Let me say a couple things as the kids are making their way out. Uh, One, it's good to have George Sardinus with us sitting in the back uh, here after an extended absence because of his battle with cancer. George, we love you and we're praying for you. Uh, So continue to pray for George. And then also we got word this morning, uh, some of you who have been here at Edgewood for a little while, uh, for a little while uh, remember Mary Lee Dufresne, who is one of our members. We got word that she passed away uh, in the early a.m. hours. Uh, so we want to pray for the Dufresne family and ask that God would be faithful to, uh, to comfort them and to minister his grace to them. Uh, Genesis 45 is where we are today. And let me, before we read, let me try to bring us up to speed because last week we were in Genesis 42, we're skipping to Genesis 45. So let me just sort of in in an abbreviated way tell you what happens in chapter 43 and 44 before we read the first portion of Genesis 45. Uh, One of the things that we mentioned last week is that when uh, the brothers come to Egypt to find food, there's a famine in the land. Joseph has been uh, exalted out of prison into the palace. He's ruling and reigning as Pharaoh's number two. We said that one of the things that seems to tie chapter 42 together is the idea that before the covenant family, before God's people can be saved, they must be reconciled to Joseph first. Right, we probably did not, uh, did not explicitly delve into that as much as what uh, I probably should have, but it's, it's also a way to say, apart from reconciliation, apart from being reconciled to God's appointed ruler and king, there is no way to be saved from death. This is sort of a model that you see throughout Scripture. The perfect expression of that, of course, is in the the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. Unless you are reconciled to your king, you cannot, you will not be saved. So what happens in chapter 42 then is that Joseph begins to engage his brothers by testing and prodding and provoking them to awaken their conscience. And it becomes very evident that although 20 or more years have passed and everyone has assumed that Joseph is long since dead, that the brothers still bear in their mind and on their hearts the guilt of their betrayal in selling their brother off and abandoning him. And that begins to come to the forefront. And so Joseph is wanting to see, he's wanting to test and discern whether or not his brothers have come to a place of repentance, whether or not they have changed in order that they can be brought fully in to enjoy reconciliation and ultimately to be saved from death. That's the very beginning of that happens in chapter 42. So here's what happens in 43 through 45. In some ways, 43 through 45 is a longer, drawn-out version of the shorter chapter 42. Chapter 42 starts with... Joseph's brothers in Canaan with Jacob. They leave Jacob, they go to Egypt. Joseph tests them and provokes them for a period of time. And then chapter 42 ends with the brothers returning to Jacob in Canaan to tell him what it is that they experienced. Chapter 43 starts in much the same way that chapter 42 starts with the brothers in Canaan with Jacob dealing with the famine that still is ongoing and Jacob sending the brothers down to Egypt to get more food. But of course, from the first visit that they had in Egypt, Joseph made it clear that if you were to come back and to get any more food or any more support from me, you're going to have to bring back the one brother that you left behind, the one that Jacob is clinging to. Because he does not think that he can survive if he loses another son. And almost as a down payment or earnest, so to speak, Joseph says, I'm going to keep one of the brothers here. He arrests Simeon, 
holds him in jail. You guys go home, and even that is a test. Will they leave, just like they left me, to be abandoned? Will they abandon Simeon now to jail, now that they've gotten what they wanted and they go home? So they return in chapter 43 to Egypt with Benjamin in tow. They present Benjamin to Joseph. Joseph lays eyes on him to know that Benjamin is still safe and secure. And Simeon is released. All good so far. Chapter 44, Joseph begins to interact with the brothers and he does some things again that sort of begins to poke and prod. For example, he invites them into a big meal. And when he sits them down at the table to enjoy the meal, Joseph has the brothers seated in birth order from oldest to youngest. And the brothers look around and they think, what in the world is happening? At the, as the meal starts off, everyone is given a healthy portion of food, but Benjamin is given five times the amount that the rest of, of the brothers get. It's almost as if Joseph is wanting to see. Now, the last time one of the brothers was favored, I know what happened. What's going to happen when Benjamin is favored? Let me see how they respond. And rather than complaining or rather than bickering, or anything, they sit down, they have a meal, they enjoy the feast that Joseph has prepared for them. So Joseph sends them on their way, but he frames them so that it's thought that Benjamin has stolen something from Joseph. And so now Joseph is threatening to hold Benjamin and to keep him in check. And the brothers now are panicking. If we go back and we've lost another brother, especially if we've lost this brother, Benjamin, the youngest, dad's going to die. He's not going to survive another loss like this. And in chapter 44, in the longest uninterrupted speech that you have in Genesis, Judah, who seems to be taking on sort of a leadership role within the family, Judah makes an impassioned plea to this Egyptian ruler and basically ends by saying, instead of holding Benjamin, I'll trade my life for his. You take me and let him go free. And at this point now, Joseph has finally seen and realized that his brothers have done a complete 180. In the same way that Joseph is not the same person that he was back in his 17, 18-year-old self, neither are his brothers the same way that they were the last that he saw them. There is something that has been changed. And so we pick up at chapter 45 now with Joseph being overcome, unable to hide the secret anymore, and he now is going to let his brothers know who he actually is. So Genesis chapter 45, read with me verses 1 through 15. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Please come closer to me. And they came closer. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not delay. You will live in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will also provide for you, for there are still five years of famine to come, and you and your household and all that you have would be impoverished. 
Behold, your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth which is speaking to you. Now you must tell my father of all my splendor in Egypt and all that you have seen. And you must hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. He kissed all his brothers and wept on them. And afterwards, his brothers talked with him. This is the word of the Lord. Bow with me in prayer. Father, I ask now that you would open our eyes in the way that Joseph's brother's eyes were opened to see you more clearly in the work of your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to see by this poor light in Joseph, the greater light of Jesus Christ, who has forgiven us, who has reconciled us to himself and to you, who has brought us back into the family of God. May we rejoice at what we see here and the truth that we are reminded of. Father, if there is anyone in, our, in this room this morning who does not know what it means to know their king to be their savior, I pray that you would give them a heart that would be drawn to you, that would be drawn to Jesus Christ by the power of your spirit. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. If you will, uh, hold your place in Genesis 45 and go back to Acts chapter 7. Pick up at verse 12, Acts 7, 12. Remember, uh, a couple weeks ago, we had looked at this speech or sermon that Stephen gives in Acts chapter 7 where he refers to um, Joseph as being uh, the chosen ruler that God raises up out of all of his afflictions and grants him wisdom and favor. And we said that Stephen, as he examines Israel's history, says that all of these little things were happening in Israel's history that were foreshadows of what God was ultimately going to do in Jesus Christ. Joseph then, I take it in part because of what Stephen says in Acts chapter 7, Joseph in some ways is himself a type of Christ. Not in every way, not perfectly, but in some significant ways. And the chapter that we have today, Genesis 45, is brought to bear in Acts chapter 7. So if you're down in verse 12, <clears throat> Stephen says in Acts 7:12, When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. That's chapter 42. They went down and they saw Joseph the first time. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. So Stephen, interestingly, if, I, if we just make a brief aside before we jump back to Genesis 45, Stephen makes a point to say that when God's family, when the covenant family, when they initially encountered Joseph, they did not know who he was. They did not recognize him for who he truly was. But after that, Joseph revealed himself to them. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you up front. I think that in a very small, short way is itself an indication that what we're seeing here in Genesis 45 is in some way a type or typifies Christ. In other words, the fact that Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, that he discloses himself, that that new revelation that they have that dawns on them provokes different responses on the part of the brothers and on the part of Joseph. I think all of that in a very small way, almost like a little model or a little sketch, provides the outlines of what we see in full in the person of Jesus Christ, who, like Joseph, is God's anointed king, who has been raised up to rule and reign. And the question is, who recognizes him for who he is? And if you recognize Jesus for who he is, what will your response be? 
What will your response be to him? What is his response to you? So we're back in Genesis 45. I'm going to try to hit three points, and we're going to bounce back and forth from what happens here in Genesis 45 to the ways that Genesis 45 sort of shadows or gets us ready for the work of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. So there are three things I'm going to look at here. If we're just following through the storyline in Genesis 45, number one, Joseph revealed. Number two, God revealed. And number three, the brothers reconciled. So Joseph revealed, God revealed, the brothers reconciled. And it needs to be said up front that Joseph's speech to his brothers, starting around verse 4 following, that's the heart of this passage. What Joseph said God has done. The main point of Genesis 45 is that God is a sovereign Savior. You need to build your life on that truth. If God is not a sovereign Savior, if He is not sovereign over the affairs of men, if He does not mercifully and providentially rule over His people for their good, there is no reason for us to hope that any good thing will come out of this life. But if God is a sovereign Savior, that means that there is nothing that happens to God's people that He is not able to direct into some sort of saving, good work that leads to our ultimate blessing and His transcendent glory. Genesis 45, 1 through 3, Joseph is revealed. Joseph is overcome by his interaction with his brothers. He's been poking and prodding and giving hints, but never fully disclosing himself until now. Now he can't stand to withhold it anymore, and so he makes himself known to his brothers with loud weeping and tears. Joseph is not standing in the room with all of his royal garb, with all of his flashy rings and staffs and stuff like that. He's not wringing his hands like the villain saying, hey, I'm Joseph, and now here it comes. Joseph makes himself known to his brothers through tears. Now, the tears in and of themselves are not the main point. It's what the tears represent. It represents the fact that for all that has happened to Joseph over 20 plus years, stemming from the hostility of his brothers and their persecution of him, their abandonment of him. For all of that, Joseph presents himself and presents himself to his brothers with a heart of compassion for them. He loves them. Now, that seems fairly obvious. What is striking, though, is the reflexive gut reaction that the brothers have when they come to realize that the ruler standing in front of us is our brother Joseph. We're told in verse 3, Joseph asked through his weeping and tears, he says, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. This Hebrew word that's used for dismayed occurs frequently in the Old Testament. And it can, it can be used in different contexts. It can mean anything from being bothered or troubled to being in significant distress to being terrified because of the trouble that you're in. Context really has to play the key. I think for, for our part, Probably to say that the brothers could not answer him because they were dismayed, that probably does not really get across the full weight or impact of what they're feeling at this moment. It probably, I think NIV, 
Uh, shout out to the NIV. I think NIV uses the, the language of terrified. The brothers could not respond to him because they were terrified. I think that probably gets to the heart of the brother's response. So then the question is, if Joseph is pouring out, he's wearing his emotions and his heart on his sleeve, weeping profusely in front of them, I'm your brother, is my father still alive, wanting to know about the family business? Why are the brothers terrified? Right. Because the brothers know what they've done to Joseph. See, when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers... Yes, they hear this is Joseph, this is our brother. They hear that, but what they hear more loudly than I am your brother is what their hearts say after that, that you sinned against. They don't see Joseph's tears because they can't see through the terror that their conscience is ginning up knowing that their offense to their brother has not been resolved. They know as they see Joseph in all of his splendor and glory, they recognize Joseph now as their brother, but they recognize him more as king and ruler, as punisher, not as an affectionate brother. This is, in many ways, some of the difficulties that we have when we approach God through Jesus Christ. On the one hand, the fact that the brothers are terrified of Joseph is built on what they know to be true. They know that Joseph is ruler of over them. They know that he, for all intents and purposes, has become their sovereign. They know that he is Lord. They know that he is the one who executes the law of the land in Egypt. They know that he has in his hands the power to grant them life or death. All of that is true. And that's all they can see when it comes to Joseph. And because that's all they can see, they are terrified when they come face to face with their brother. It is possible for you to approach the throne of God and to see Jesus seated on the throne, to recognize him, to acknowledge that he is the rightful ruler and king over your life, over all of creation, to confess that he is Lord, to say that he holds in his hand the keys to life and death. It is possible to rightly acknowledge and confess all of that and yet not be able to go any further to enjoy the brotherhood that you have with Jesus Christ. Hebrews makes a point to say that because the brothers share in flesh and blood, he also likewise took of the same. Do you hear that language? In other words, Jesus, the Son... The eternal son, because he came and took on human flesh, Hebrews uses brother language. Jesus is, yes, the eternal son of God, manifested, revealed in the flesh. But in his flesh, in his humanity, he has become not only king and sovereign and ruler, but he has become a brother to us. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. 
Start with me at verse 12. Let me show you just one way. That this bears itself out here. Hebrews 4, 12, and 13. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. And able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. This is one of those little verses, Hebrews 4.12, that we like to put up on the mirror or maybe make a bumper sticker out of it. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. That's true. But listen, people, in the context of Hebrews 4, that is not being given to create the warm fuzzies in your heart. Hebrews 4 is saying that God, as He has already spoken in His Word, maintains the power of His Word in such a way that it declares to be right or wrong, sinful or righteous... Every single thing that happens in this created universe. That the very deepest, darkest impulses of your heart cannot be hidden from the exposure to God's Word. It calls it for what it is. And there is no way that you can hide from the one who knows who you are inside and out. Do you know God that way? If you know God that way, you are in good company if you find that statement to be unsettling. If not, even terrifying. I don't want someone to know what my deepest, darkest thoughts are. I don't want anyone to see that. But the one who does see it and the one who does know me for who I am is also the one who stands as judge over every act, every thought that occurs. That's terrifying. If you stop at verse 13. But if you don't stop at verse 13 and you continue on to verse 14, listen to what we hear. Therefore, since we are laid bare, since we are exposed, since there is no way for us to hide our unbelief and our disobedience and our sinful impulses to rebellion, therefore, since we have A great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The brothers can see that Joseph is Lord. The brothers can see that Joseph is ruler. The brothers can see that he is the one who will execute justice, but they do not see Joseph as being merciful and sympathetic and compassionate. The passage that JT read earlier from 1 John 4, perfect love casts out fear because fear involves judgment. And the one who fears has not been perfected in love. Do you hear that? In other words, even though we know ourselves to be deserving of God's judgment, 
It is possible for us to see the sovereign king of the universe, to see him seated on his throne, ruling and reigning, to know that were it not for his mercy, we would unravel at the seams in a heartbeat. It is possible to know that and yet to do what Hebrews says, which is to approach with confidence the throne of grace. Because when we approach the throne, we have the freedom, we have the ability to know that the one that we are coming to is not merely king and executioner, but he is our compassionate, sympathetic brother. Oftentimes, the reason that we do not enjoy the love of God in the person of Jesus Christ is because our hearts are too drowned out by the loud talking of our legalistic, law-driven mentality. It is not enough to know that Jesus is king. It is not enough to know that he is the one who has been seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. You must know, you can know, that Jesus is also your Savior your advocate, the one who intercedes for you daily. And if you come to know not only Jesus and his greatness and his power and his majesty, but also know him as your faithful older brother, you will be able to walk ever more freely in the love of God that has been poured out into our hearts through Jesus Christ by the power of His Spirit. Do you know Him as your compassionate brother? Or do you fear Him as judge? Number two, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. Because his brothers do not know Joseph's heart, they cannot rest in that revelation. If we don't know the heart of Jesus Christ for sinners like us, we will not be able to rest in the heart that he has for us. One of the reasons, the main reason that Joseph himself gives as to why his heart is moved with compassion rather than vengeance is given in verses 4 and following where Joseph reveals that all that has happened has been God's doing. So Genesis 45, verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer. Do you hear that? Even just pause there for a second. Joseph has revealed himself. I'm your brother. They're terrified. They're standing at a distance. I don't know what the distance is. And here is Joseph who's calling them, come closer. Come to me. Come closer. Please come closer to me. They came closer. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Skip down to verse 7. He says a second time, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Verse 8. Now therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Notice right up front, Joseph does not say that what you did was not a big deal. 
eh, water under the bridge. He does not minimize the fact that what they did was criminal, that it was a sin. He's not denying that at all. What Joseph is doing, though, is saying, the reason that I can draw you to myself, the reason that I can have compassion on you is because you sold me, but God sent me. Did Joseph's brothers sin against him? Yes. Unequivocally. It was sinful what they did. Did God send Joseph to Egypt? Yes. Unequivocally, God sent Joseph to Egypt. How did he send Joseph to Egypt? He sent Joseph to Egypt, in one sense at least, by means of this sinful act on the part of his brothers. There is nothing that happens in this created order that you can trace back to sinful hearts, to depravity, to rebellion against God. There is nothing that you can trace along those lines, but that you can't also trace God's hand and one day His ability to make good all things that were once wrong. Do you believe that? People who believe that God rules sovereignly over His creation, even over the sinful acts of rebels, are the most loving, forgiving, compassionate people in the world. It does not justify sin. It does not excuse disobedience. But it does magnify, in a mysterious, profound way, the extent to which nothing happens in this world that God does not use to bring about to further His purpose, not ours. Turn to the book of Acts, chapter 2. Look at Acts 2.23, and then we're going to skip over to Acts 4.27 through 28. Peter talking about Jesus being crucified. Peter says in Acts 2.23, This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Were those people guilty for killing Christ? Yes. Was their killing and crucifying of Christ an accident? No. Acts chapter 4. Verse 27. The apostles and the Christians say, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. How is it possible for evil and sinful acts 
to be part of God's directive work in bringing all things to fulfill the counsel of his will. How? My answer is, I don't know. And by the way, neither do any of you. Rather than trying to figure out how the Lord does it, Scripture calls us again and again to merely acknowledge by faith that the Lord is sovereign and that He rules and reigns. And because He rules and reigns, there is no one and nothing that can chip away at His control, His rule over His creation. There is nothing that can be done that will alter in any way God's purpose and plan from being accomplished. Joseph has come to realize that. Don't be afraid. Don't be angry at yourself because you sold me here because when you sold me, God was sending me. That same thing is said about Jesus in the Gospels, about Jesus in the New Testament. The Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Joseph is now able to see that and present that truth and that reality to his brothers, having been able to see that while God is working through his circumstances and his situation, God has also worked in and through the lives of his brothers as well. You understand, though, that, that whereas Joseph in some way sort of foreshadows Christ ruling and reigning, it foreshadows it in a very weak sort of way. Right? Joseph is the one who comes on the scene, who recognizes that he has been made the ruler over the land, and who must wait and see if his brothers are going to be worthy of entering into his forgiveness and grace. So from the very first time that Joseph meets his brothers, what is Joseph trying to do? Joseph is trying to figure out, have these men changed? I want to be kind. I want to be compassionate. I don't know where they are. That's not what Jesus does. You think Jesus was sent Wondering, waiting whether or not you were ready to be reconciled and to repent? Romans chapter 5, turn there. Look at the repetition that goes on in Romans 5, 6 and following. Romans 5, 6, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. When did Christ die for us? When we were ready when we were on our way on the road to self-improvement, while we were still helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. Skip down to verse 8. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for you, he died for me, Christ died for his people before they could ever do anything to deserve it. And then last, look at verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. 
Joseph is an example of mercy and compassion because on revealing himself to his brothers and seeing that there has been a change of heart, a change of disposition on them, he offers to bring them back in and to reconcile them. That is so far short of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world and He comes into a world that is filled with rebels and God-haters, people who are going every way they can except towards God, and those are the people that the Son comes to save. And He steps in voluntarily to save people who are not wanting to help themselves, who are completely weak and unable, who have not repented of their sins, but Jesus does everything on the front end, and then Jesus brings in rebels to himself when they least suspect it. He did that with you, and he did it with me. He may have done it instantaneously in a moment. He may have done it over a process. But it is the mercy and the compassion of God's anointed king that is able to take all of his authority and all of his command and use it for the good of the people who deserve it least. God sent me here, Joseph says, so that you could have life. All that God does for his people, everything that he does, he does so that they may have life and have it abundantly. Going back to the first couple of verses, this is why it is so crucial. It is so helpful. It is medicine to the soul to know Jesus as your merciful and sympathetic high priest, to know him as your brother that shares in the weakness of your flesh. Because when you go through your Joseph experiences, when you're mistreated, when you're abandoned, when you are done wrong, when you are sinned against, or when life is so crazy and chaotic that it seems like your world is falling apart, you know what you don't have to worry about? You know what you don't have to wonder? You don't have to wonder if the king is getting ready to annihilate you. You don't. Though Satan should buffet, though trial should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. You can know because of the mercy and compassion of the King, Jesus Christ, that even when you are sinned against, even when you are the one who does the sinning, that His providential good rule over you and over His people is not threatened. And in fact, in some profound, mysterious way, every single thing, that happens in any given moment must, must work for our good. So Joseph reveals himself as a merciful and compassionate brother who also happens to be ruler. He reveals that his place, his position, his authority has been given to him by God. None of this has happened by accident. God has sent Joseph to Egypt, albeit through the sinful acts of his brothers, so that 
God's people can be saved. So that they would be preserved. He does it to give them life. And then having said all of that, now Joseph makes it clear we can be reconciled. So after he says three times, it wasn't you, it was God that sent me here. I'm here so that you can live, so that our family would be saved. Then he says, in essence, go tell dad that I'm still here. Bring him to me. Listen, I've got all of this authority and control. I've got all this influence. Guess what? Everything that I have, I'm now going to put to your benefit and your advantage. All that I have is yours. I'm going to take, out of all the riches and all the wealth that I have in this kingdom, and I'm going to give it to you. You see, forgiveness that that is given to us in Christ goes beyond mere forgiveness. Understand, it's possible, it would be possible for God to forgive sinners but not reconcile them. Do Do you know what that would look like? That's essentially like being in the courtroom and the judge says, I'm going to suspend sentence, whatever the speeding or theft or whatever it is that you're you're standing before a judge. I'm going to suspend the sentence. I'm going to have this guy over here. I'm going to have him pay for it, or better yet, I'll pay the fine myself. But don't ever let me see you again. You sicken me. The criminal in the courtroom who has been forgiven of his debt, who has been forgiven of his fine, is truly forgiven for what he owes. Has he been reconciled, though, to the judge? No, the judge doesn't want anything to do with him. I'll forgive the penalty. I'll let it go. But I'm letting you go, too. I don't want to come within 10 feet of you. That's not what God does with his children. He forgives them, he pardons them, and he reconciles them to himself. He doesn't just say, now get out of here and make sure you don't do it again. But he brings us in and he says, all that is mine, I give to you. All that Christ stands to inherit. We are going to share in that. We are going to rule and reign with Christ. That's reconciliation. And look at the way that this plays itself out at the end. What a great picture going from the beginning to the end. At the very last verse that we read this morning, verse 15. After he weeps with Benjamin, right? They shared the same mother, so there's a a unique bond of affection there. He weeps with Benjamin, kisses him. Verse 15, he kissed all his brothers and wept on them. And afterward, his brothers talked with him. Now that seems rather anticlimactic, doesn't it? He hugs them, he kisses them, he weeps with them, and then they sit down and talk. But remember, how did the story with Joseph and his brothers start off? Do you remember all the way back in, what was that, chapter 37? Joseph's brothers hate Joseph. Joseph does not do himself any favors in trying to smooth things out. And one of the statements that's made in the opening scenes with Joseph and his brothers, is that they hated him and they could not even talk peaceably with him. They couldn't even carry on a conversation with him. They hated him so much. And now look at where things have come. By Joseph's grace and forgiveness, by Joseph's act of reconciliation to bring them in, now the brothers are able to do with Joseph what they could never do before, which is to sit down and to enjoy the relationship that they have as brothers. They can love one another. Any time you go to the Lord in prayer, you are a living example of this dynamic. 
the fact that you can go in to God's throne room and can sit and have an audience with him whenever you want is no greater sign of the reconciliation, the saving work of Jesus Christ. There is no other greater sign than that. Do you take advantage of it? Are you still wrestling with your guilty, law-driven heart that you can't see God, you can't see Christ as King as being compassionate and gracious to you? You fear approaching Him because of what He might say or what He might reveal. He loves you. He is gracious and compassionate towards all of His people. And listen to me. If you are here today and you do not know what it means to have this kind of relationship, to have this kind of reconciliation brought to bear on your life so that you have been reconciled to your Creator and King, it can happen for you today. This is the other miraculous thing that far overshadows all that Joseph could do in this passage. Joseph is willing to extend forgiveness to the things that directly have affected him or the things that have happened over the span of 20 years or so. And over 20 years, all of that can be forgiven once Joseph sees that his brothers have been changed. You understand that Christ just simply calls those who were burdened with their own sin and weight. He just says, just come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is dying to pay for the sins of his people on the cross. And there is a man sitting off to his right on the cross next to him who calls out, who asks for the mercy of the king to pardon him. And what does Jesus say? Does he say, well, tell me what you've done for me lately? Does he say, tell me what you will do for me lately? He's talking to a dying man who is not going to be able to do anything. And the mere fact that this man calls out for grace and forgiveness from the king is enough for Jesus to say, today you will be with me. Free pass. Free gift. You don't earn it. You don't maintain it. He gives everything. And if you're here and you don't know what that gift is like, I don't care how long you have been in rebellion against your creator and king. A year, 10 years, 20, your entire life. All of that can be dealt with in an instant because of the surpassing greatness of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And for those of you who have already experienced that, you need to go back to those truths over and over again because that's the only thing that's going to sustain you in your broken, mixed-up life as we continue to strive for holiness and sanctification and wrestle with sin, to know that the King is gracious and compassionate. God is a sovereign Savior who has given us a merciful, forgiving king. Take advantage of it. Take advantage of him. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for ever doubting that the offer of forgiveness and reconciliation, the promise of adoption, the promise of sanctification is too good to be true, as if you do not mean what you say as if you were not able to do what you promise. Forgive us for thinking lightly of the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, who stood in as our substitute, who took the full penalty for our sin in his death on the cross, and then who was raised to rule and reign over your people with life that he gives to all who would ask for it. 
Forgive us for thinking lightly of the spirit of adoption that you have placed within us that causes us to know that we belong to you and that we no longer need to fear you as our judge, but that we can approach you as our father and we can approach Jesus the King as our brother. Father, I pray that for this body here at Edgewood that you would continue to cause us to dwell deeper in the depths of your mercy and that if there is anyone here this morning who does not know the saving power of Jesus Christ, that you would open their eyes to see Jesus for who he is. Thank you for your goodness to us. Amen.
Bless. You're dismissed.